Good morning. Today, Bruce will be continuing his reading, um, or continuing his sermon series on James. Um, we will be looking at James chapter 5, um, 13 through 18. So if you have your Bible, please turn to James chapter 5. Um, if you don't, feel free to grab a pew Bible from in front of you. Um, today's reading will be on 1202. So please follow along with me as I read. Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick, and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer, of the prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed fervently that it might not rain for three years and six months. It did not rain on the earth. Then he prayed again, and heaven gave rain, and the earth bore its fruit. Please bow your head with me as I pray. Dear Heavenly Father, Thank you for the gift of prayer. We thank you that we can talk with you at any time or place, and not just for praise will you hear us, but we can come to you in our time of need with requests, and you will hear them. We can come to you when we are broken, and all that we have are laments, and you will hear them. Lord, help us to hear what Pastor Bruce has to teach us about prayer from your word, and help us not to just hear, but apply. Most of all, Lord, help us to pray. In the name of the Father, I pray this. Amen. You will want to keep your Bibles open, I promise you, as this is one of the more fascinating passages of Scripture that you will ever come upon. And so I, I hope you have your Bibles. If you don't, I want to encourage you to use a pew Bible there. Keep it open. If you want to look at your digital version on your phone of a copy of the Scriptures, I hope you will do that as well. As we have seen throughout this series, the letter of James, this book that we have been looking at, is about real faith in real life. In nowhere is that more evident or more true than in the midst of suffering. And since no one, as we have seen, uh, going back all the way to chapter 1, is exempt from suffering, let me just throw out a few questions here by way of introduction. When you're up against it in life, when you are facing things that, that you never thought you would face, when, when your life is not working out the way you planned or wanted it to or expected it to, where do you run? What do you do? Who do you turn to? James, if you were here last Sunday, you might remember, he has just called us as Christ followers to these uh, believers that he's writing to in, in the original, who he, uh, the original believers here, he's just called us to, to patient endurance in suffering. We saw last Sunday that in the midst of this suffering, our hope is the coming of Jesus Christ, the return of our Lord. And our response to our suffering is to be patient Till Jesus comes. In fact, twice we saw James tells us to be patient until the coming of the Lord. And so we see here that it's the coming of the Lord, our, our hope in that, that is what inspires us now to be patient. James tells us even to, to strengthen our hearts by contemplating this reality that Jesus is coming. He has promised to come. His return is Upon us, but James also knows that we do not have enough strength in ourselves, even by ourselves, to remain steadfast in the midst of suffering till Jesus comes. So, where do you turn? Where do you run? What do you do? And James now focuses on this privilege of ours, this invitation by God. And he exhorts us here to turn to God in prayer. James has just exhorted us to, to be patient till Jesus comes. 
And now he is exhorting us to be prayerful till Jesus comes. And in these closing verses here, we are called to handle everything in life with what? With prayer till Jesus comes. Why? Well, as we will see in this passage, because prayer makes a difference. Now, if ever a man was qualified to to exhort us here to prayer, it was James. He was a man of prayer. In fact, church historians actually refer to him as old camel knees because it's reported that he spent so much time on his knees praying in the temple that over time his knees became calloused and hard and looked like the knees of a camel. So James here, the author of this letter, he, he knows from experience the, the necessity of prayer, the priority of prayer for the believer who's especially in the midst of suffering. Now, at the same time, I just want to say up front, this passage has been a lightning rod of much biblical confusion in theological controversy over the years. These verses have been misinterpreted, misapplied, causing much confusion and debate among Christians even today. As one author and pastor writes, Roman Catholics find it in it biblical support for the sacrament of extreme unction. Faith healers of every stripe have used it to teach that all sick Christians are guaranteed healing through prayer. And still others see in it a precedent for anointing sick people with oil. So yes, I freely acknowledge this passage raises a number of questions. But when you read this passage in context, it is very, very clear that this passage is about one thing and one thing only. Prayer. In fact, the words pray or prayer are used seven seven different times in this passage. And there's only six verses here we're dealing with. And so while this passage can be easily misunderstood, the overall point that James is making in these verses is quite clear. We must pray till Jesus comes or we won't make it. That is, we will not remain steadfast in our faith in the midst of suffering till Jesus comes. So James says, pray, pray, and pray more. So what does it mean now to handle everything in life with prayer till Jesus comes? Well, James tells us what it means by introducing us to, you might say, four groups of different people. We see here in this passage the praying Christian, we see the praying pastors, we see the praying church, and we also see this praying prophet at the end by the name of Elijah. So let's dive into it. Let's untangle these, uh, this passage here. Number one, the Christian is called to pray in every situation. Verse 13, look at it with me in your Bibles. Notice what James says, is anyone among you suffering? Well, let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? And what does James say? Let him sing praise. So these two rhetorical questions establish James' point right up front. Prayer is always the right response for every Christian in every situation in every season of life. Think about what happens when we pray. When you pray, you recognize the sovereignty of God. When you pray, you recognize the presence of God. When you pray, you recognize the power of God. When you pray, you recognize the love of God, the grace of God, the mercy of God. As Paul Tripp writes, prayer invites you to embrace the reality of the existence of God and rest. So when should you pray? James says, in every situation. So we see the praying Christian here is to pray in times of suffering. James says, are you suffering? Let us turn to God in prayer. Now, this is an incredible invitation when you really begin to think about it. God is inviting you to seek his help in times of suffering. We know that many of these original readers of this letter, they were what? They were suffering. They were in the middle of suffering. And that's why in the previous section, James told them to be patient in suffering. And now he says to these same believers, 
pray in your suffering. Now, to suffer, we, we understand that, but it means to experience pain, to endure affliction, to undergo difficulty. So suffering is this inner, inner turmoil of facing difficult circumstances. And I just love what Alec Motier writes. He's a commentator on the book of James, and he says this. It is, speaking of suffering, any ill circumstance which may come upon us, any trial, anything of which we or an onlooking friend might say, that's bad. In other words, a friend looks at you and your life and what you're going through and says, that's bad. And when a friend does that to you and says, whoa, that's bad, James says, let him turn to God in prayer. Remember what James said about the prophets. He already told us previously in verse 10 as an example of suffering and patience. So the suffering prophets remind us that even godly people are not exempt from suffering. And this question that James asked is anyone among you, among who? Among these believers in the church that James is writing to. If anyone among you is suffering, it assumes there are suffering Christians. And I bet you there are suffering believers here even this morning. Whether it is small or whether it is great. It may be physical, it may be emotional, financial, relational, or spiritual trial. You are suffering through. And if you are going through a time of suffering today, then James says, turn to God in prayer. Now, at the same time, it's rather interesting. James does not tell us what to pray here. He just says, let him pray. But we know from the rest of the book of James that we should pray at least, at a minimum, we should pray for patient endurance in the midst of our suffering, right? We know we should also pray for perspective, that is, God's perspective on our lives and on the situation we are encountering. We should even pray for God's wisdom. We should pray for grace towards others. Because oftentimes when we go through suffering, we take it out on others. So these at a minimum, as we've seen in the book of James already, is stuff that we should pray for. So we also know when you expand and you go to the other scriptures in the book, I mean in the Bible, For example, Paul, we know Paul asked God to remove the, the, quote, thorn in his flesh that was causing him to suffer. And God's answer to Paul in 2 Corinthians 12, 9 was, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. So, So prayer, when we go to God in prayer, it may not yield the answer that you want, but it will bring the answer that you need. Prayer may bring you out of your suffering, or it may simply give you strength to endure through your suffering. No matter what, James says, in times of suffering, to the individual Christian here, he says, if you're suffering, let us turn to God in prayer. And now he expands it. He goes to the other end of the specter, and he says, in times of cheerfulness, let us turn to God in praise. Now, when James asked this rhetorical question, is anyone cheerful? This word cheerful, it simply means to be in good heart. Cheerful. It does not mean to be trouble-free, but rather to be happy in spirit. So this is an inner attitude, just like suffering is an inner turmoil. This is an inner attitude of joy Whatever the circumstances may be in your life. We have an example of this by Paul again during a shipwreck. The angel of the Lord actually assured Paul that the Lord was with him. And Paul told his shipmates in Acts 27, 22, Yet now I urge you in the middle of a shipwreck of a storm to take heart. In other words, be of good cheer, for there will be no loss of life among you, but only of the ship. And so while some Christians are suffering Other Christians are cheerful, and James says to the cheerful ones, hey, let us hear praise. Let us sing praise to our God. Now, singing is just another form of praying, and we see this all through the Psalms. Psalms are are songs and prayers, they're laments, the, the writers of the Psalms are going through all the emotions of life, and they are songs and prayers 
And so singing praises to God is a way to pray when you're happy in spirit, even when your circumstances are bad. And yes, James is focusing on the individual Christian to do this, but there is most certainly a corporate aspect to this, that when we gather on Sunday mornings together, we ought to be singing, being cheerful and acknowledging our God in song of who he is. So when we come together, let us not only pray when we're suffering, but let us come together and let us sing praises to our God. Let us be a singing church. There is power both in prayer and in singing. In fact, we have another example of this. In Acts 16, Paul and Silas did what when they were in prison? That was their circumstances. They sang hymns to God while in prison with bleeding backs and feet fastened to chains. When should we pray? James says pray in every situation according to the situation. It means every situation in life should cause us to respond in prayer to God. Calvin put it so well. James means that there is no time in life which God does not invite us to himself. In other words, do you realize we have a God for all seasons of life? All seasons of life. No matter what we are going through. In times of suffering or in times of cheerfulness, prayer and praise, acknowledge that God is sovereign over all. Again, if I might quote Alec Motier, he says this, to pray to God is to acknowledge his sovereign power to meet our needs. And to praise God is to acknowledge his sovereign power in appointing our circumstances. So whether as the source of supply in our need or the source of the gladness in our joy, God is our sufficiency. That's why we pray. In fact, this is why Paul tells us in 1 Thessalonians 5, 16, and 18, Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. So as Christians here, we have this incredible privilege to go to God in prayer. God, think about it. He invites us to come to him in every situation. And that includes one particular situation in life that Christians are also prone to experience as anyone else in life. Sickness. Not just suffering, but now sickness. And so now we see it's not just the praying Christian, but it is the praying pastors, or as James calls them, the elders. And so we see here in point number two, the elders are called to pray for the sick. Now, again, we come to one of the most fascinating passages in all of the book of James here. And yes, there is much confusion and controversy surrounding these two particular verses. Look at them with me again, what James writes. He says, it's anyone among you sick, let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick, and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Now, again, these two verses raise a number of questions. In fact, more questions than time remaining to answer all the questions that you and I might have here this morning. But I think here's here's the one overarching question that probably... Uh, summarizes all the questions we might have, and that's this. Does prayer plus faith plus oil equal healing of the sick? In other words, does the prayer of faith mean that if you pray with enough faith that the sick will be healed? And if they are not healed, does that mean that you did not pray with enough faith? And also, why is oil part of the process? What's up with that? And what does sin have to do with the sick? Why does James mention sin here with sickness? Listen, these are all really good questions. And as we seek to answer these questions, 
Again, let me just say this. Don't miss the forest for the trees. Don't miss the primary point of what James is writing about here. These verses are a call first and foremost to what? Prayer. James asked, is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them what? Pray over him. So once again, prayer we see here is the appropriate solution to problems in our lives. And in this case, the problem is sickness. And the sickness is so bad that you now cannot pray for yourself. And you need to call in the God-given resources of the church to pray for you. That's the essence of what James is saying here. But as they say, the devil's in the details. So let's try to untangle the details of these verses. Notice the praying elders or pastors. First of all, the sick person is responsible to ask the elders for prayer. It appears that James is describing here someone who is seriously ill or sick. In fact, this word sick, it means to to be without strength. It can refer to a weakness of any kind, and it's used here to refer to the physically sick. And so this person is suffering, it appears, from a very serious illness. In fact, this person is so sick that they are now incapable of participating in the corporate gathering of the church. And perhaps this person, this sick person, is is bedridden and they cannot come to their church family for prayer. And so this person is to do what? They are to call for the elders or pastors of their church to come and now pray over them. Now, James isn't saying at the same time here that anytime you get a common cold, you should call me or Pastor Chris. Please don't do that. When you have a common call, he's not saying, call your pastors or elders and have them come to your house to pray for you. James is talking about a serious sickness here. You, you're housebound, basically, is the idea. So let me make uh, a few observations here in an applications with this first point. First of all, please, please see this. James, he, in writing this, he assumes something in this passage. He's making an assumption. He's he's assuming that Christians are part of a local church where they know the elders or pastors of that church and they call upon those elders or pastors if necessary. So James does not envision at all Christians who are not a functioning part of a local church. In fact, this is consistent throughout the New Testament as other New Testament writers also assume the same thing, that every Christian will be engaged as active members in a local church who know their elders, they are accountable to their elders, they have a relationship with their elders or pastors, and will call upon them when necessary. Second, did you notice that it is the sick person who is to call for the elders or pastors to pray? James writes, look at it again, is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church. So it is the responsibility. It is incumbent upon the sick to call for the pastors to come and pray. So please, here, listen to me. Please do not assume that the pastors know that you're sick at home or that they know that you're sick in the hospital. Please don't assume that that I know or Pastor Chris knows, unless you make us aware of that. The sick must let the pastors know that they are sick. They also must let them know that they want prayer. And believe me, when that happens, and it happens quite often here, where we are made aware, people call us and let us know, and they want prayer, we, are, we love the opportunity to come pray, especially when it happens quite frequently when people are in the hospital, and we, we come and pray for them. Pray over them. And it has happened throughout my 20 years of pastoring here where there have been occasions where we have been called upon, Pastor Chris and myself, along with our leadership council who function as elders to actually come and pray over somebody specifically in that situation with their sickness. 
That has happened before. And it is a privilege for us as the spiritual leaders of LifeBridge to do so when we are called upon to do that. Also, another observation, James is not forbidding here the use of doctors or medicine. I hope you see that when he says, call for the elders. When he says, call for the elders, that does not mean don't call your doctor. James is simply prescribing prayer for the sick by the elders. Why? Because he understands that ultimately when anybody is sick, it is God Almighty that heals. And yes, God uses and can heal through doctors and modern medicine and all of the, you know, what we have available to us today. So, Another question, what about this issue of sickness and sin, though? Is there a connection between the two? And the answer is, absolutely, there is a connection between sin and sickness. At the same time, please hear me, James is not implying that if someone is sick, the reason is because of some particular personal sin in their life. James says, did you catch it? If, he says, if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven, not because he has committed sins. So James is not assuming the sickness is caused by some particular personal sin, and neither should we. We should not assume that. And yet at the same time, the Bible does teach that all sickness is a result of sin. You you say, why? Well, because we live in a fallen, sinful world where sin directly causes some sickness and sin indirectly causes all sickness. But not all sickness is caused by one's personal sin. We know this from the Gospels when Jesus encountered a blind man in John 9. And his disciples came and asked, well, is he blind because he sinned or his parents sinned? And Jesus says, you got it all wrong. Neither. It's just by God's sovereignty that he allowed this to happen. In fact, even ordained it to happen. It's not because of the blind man's sin. So if you wake up in the morning with a cold, it doesn't necessarily mean that there's some sin in your life that is the root cause of your cold. Please don't think that. However, James does not exclude the possibility that there is a connection here between sickness and sin. Remember, James says, if he has committed sins. So some sickness, yes, please hear this. Some sickness is definitely the direct result of personal sin in our life and is actually the discipline or judgment of God on our lives. We have an example of this in Scripture. Paul tells the Corinthian church that some of those believers there had become sick, and some of them even died because they had abused the Lord's Supper, and they were unrepentant about it. So James, he allows for the possibility the sick person has sinned, but James also assures us that when sin has played some role in the sickness in our life, those sins will be forgiven by God when we confess them to God. Praise the Lord for that, amen? Aren't you thankful for that? Second of all, we see the elders here. The elders are responsible to come and pray over the sick person. And again, we've already alluded to this. Who are the elders? The elders are the same as pastors. They are the spiritual leaders of the church. They are not faith healers for the church. And so when called upon by the sick, the pastors or the spiritual leaders of the church are to come and pray over the sick. And James adds this, anointing them with oil. Now, that is the only place in the New Testament letters where anointing a sick person with oil is mentioned. So what's what's up with that? What is the significance of anointing with oil? Well, it could be one of two reasons, I think. One, it could be for medicinal purposes or symbolic purposes. The use of oil may be for medicinal purposes, like when you go to the Gospels and you have the, the parable of the Good Samaritan there in Luke chapter 10. But in my opinion, that seems rather strange in this context to call the elders to administer medical care 
through the use of oil. Why? Why not just call a doctor for that? Call a family member, a friend to come over and administer the medical care that you need. Anybody can do that. It doesn't necessarily require pastors or elders or the spiritual leaders of the church to do that. So for that reason, I actually think the, the better interpretation here is that the use of oil here is it's symbolic of God's presence and setting apart for God's purpose. But ultimately, no matter which side you take on that, the power for healing is not found in any oil, but in the God who answers our prayer. Listen, the oil isn't mystical The oil isn't magical here. There's no supernatural power in a few drops of oil, whether it's essence oil, whether it's, you know, you name it, motor oil. (laughs) There's all kinds of oil out there. There's no supernatural power in the oil. Listen, the power is in the God we pray to. That's why the most important qualifier here is when James says, in the name of the Lord, in verse 14. So what's important is not whether a sick person is anointed with oil or not. Although, if somebody requested that from me or Pastor Chris or us the spiritual team, I have no problems doing that. Certainly nothing wrong with that. Why? Because, because it's symbolic of God's presence, especially the power of the Holy Spirit and the setting apart for that purpose of that person for God's purposes. So, but what's important is not whether the sick person is anointed with oil. What's most important here is whether our prayers are lifted up to God in the name of the Lord, acknowledging that he alone has the power for healing the sick. This brings us to the third part of praying for the sick. The Lord is responsible to heal the sick person in accordance to his will. Now, notice again what James writes here in verse 15. And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick, and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. So we see here the Lord is ultimately the one who who raises up the sick person, and he's the one who does the healing, and he does it, James says, through the prayer of faith. And notice that is the faith of who? It's the faith of the elders or the pastors here, the ones doing the praying. It is not the faith of the sick person. So James is not teaching that the sick person is healed only when he or she has enough faith. Instead, James is emphasizing the faith of the ones praying. And yet, we need to ask the question, what what do we make of this prayer of faith? That phrase that James uses. Well, first of all, it is a rather unusual phrase. I mean, a very unusual phrase that is used nowhere else in Scripture and can often be misunderstood as some type of guarantee for healing. Well, let me just say this. The prayer of faith is it's not a formula for healing the sick. Nor, nor is this a special category of prayer that we are to use when we pray for the sick. The prayer of faith is prayer that is prayed if we take it in context and expand it to the rest of the book of James. You go to James chapter 1, verses 6 and 7. We see there that the prayer of faith here is now the prayer of unwavering faith. Remember what James said in chapter 1? But let him ask in what? Faith with no doubting. For the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. And then when we expand the context out of the book of James and we go to other scriptures, we see the prayer of faith is also that is according to God's will. 1 John 5.14 says, and this is the confidence that we have toward him, God, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. So this prayer of faith, I believe this is what it is. It is, it is a prayer that, first of all, expresses faith in God Almighty. And second of all, it is prayer that is submits submit, submit to God's will. Whatever his will might be for the sick. So by definition, do you realize every prayer 
is actually a prayer of faith. And every prayer must be submitted to God's will. We saw that already at the end of chapter 4 here in James, verse 15. Now, God's will, we don't know what it is, do we, for the sick? And so that's why we pray in the name of the Lord, according to the will. Lord, whatever your will may be, give us grace to accept that. God's will might be for the sick to be miraculously healed. Or God's will might be for the sick to patiently endure their sickness. Or it might be God's will for the sick to die from their sickness. And yet, James is exhorting us here that we should pray with this expectation that God can heal, but doing so without demanding that he must heal. Listen to me. God uses, yes, he uses faith-filled prayers of both pastors and Christ followers to bring healing when it is according to his will. And we believe that as a church. We praise God for that. And some of you have seen that and have experienced that in your own life. So when it comes to this incredible invitation to pray, James starts with the praying Christian. He then moves to the praying pastors. And now he expands it to the praying church. Number three, the church is called to pray for one another. James writes in verse 16. Look at it. Therefore. Therefore what? See, therefore, you need to ask that question. Therefore what? What's it there for? And in this case, the answer is, since prayer makes a difference, we've already seen that in verses 14 and 15. Since prayer makes a difference, and since our sins will be forgiven when they are confessed, what does James now tell the whole church? In the rest of verse 16, he says, Confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. So James is calling the church to do two things here. You see it in your notes confess your sins to one another, and pray for one another. Now, it is again, these verses are all fascinating to me. And again, here's another verse that's rather fascinating because it's interesting to note that that this is the only verse in the Bible that calls believers to confess their sins to one another. Why? Why is James calling us to do this. Why why is he calling for this? And context provides the answer. Remember who James is writing to. James is writing to believers with all kinds of sin in the church. We have covered all these sins already through five chapters of James. We have seen the sins in the church among these believers that that he has dealt with and confronted. Sins like anger. Sins like favoritism toward the rich. Sins like quarrels and fights among you. Sins like judging one another. Sins of speaking evil against one another. Sins of grumbling against one another. So this church has all kinds of sins that James is calling out among them. And so there is this absence of relational harmony going on in the church. Let me tell you, this is one fractured community that desperately needs healing that comes from reconciliation and restoration of relationships. You see, this church in particular, it needs to do a whole lot of confessing to one another. Why? Because they have done a whole lot of sinning against one another. So when James says, confess your sins to one another, this would actually be in accordance with what we see Jesus writing in Matthew chapter 5, 23 and 24, when he says, if you come and worship and you know you have something against a brother, you need to go to that brother, confess your sins, and seek their forgiveness. We see this also in Matthew 18. You offend somebody or you think somebody offended you, sinned against you, you should go to them. Sort it out. This is why James calls now for confession of sin to one another and prayer for one another. 
one commentator writes this, the biblical position regarding confession can be summed up in this way. Confession is to be made to the person against whom we have sinned and from whom we need to receive forgiveness. And this confession of sin, this prayer for one another, let me tell you, it is the means by which God uses to bring reconciliation between one another and restoration in a church family. This is the healing that God brings to his people. So what about confession of sin in the context of accountability? Is there any place for that? Well, I I would say yes, there is. There is a a level of spiritual protection that comes through honest sharing with other believers of our struggles and failures so that in prayer together, we may bear one another's burdens and pray for cleansing, for deliverance and healing and victory. After all, sin thrives, listen to me, in secrecy. As one Christian counselor says, you're only as sick as your secrets. So if you've got a lot of secrets, you're really sick. And the cure for that sickness, James says here, is confession of sin. Yes, first and foremost to God, who is the one who forgives. But if we have sinned against another brother, we confess it to them and seek their forgiveness. And yes, there is an aspect of spiritual protection, of accountability, with a few trusted friends that we share our struggles. So the cure for sickness is confession of sin in prayer for one another. And notice what God does here. This is amazing. God works through our confession in prayer to bring what? To bring healing. Now, in verses 14 and 15, primarily the issue was sickness, physical sickness even. And here in verse 16, the issue primarily is our sin, which James views as a a spiritual sickness that needs to be healed. And this healing that God brings, let me tell you, it impacts every part of our life. The body, the soul, and the spirit. So do you realize that sometimes, I'm not saying all the time, but sometimes our bodies are sick because Our souls are sick with unconfessed sin. And we cannot get better physically or even emotionally until we get better spiritually. If you want an example of this, I encourage you to read Psalm chapter 32. David had yet to confess his sins, and he writes about it before Nathan confronts him of his sin with Bathsheba, how he, when I kept silent, in other words, when I had not confessed my sins to God and sought his forgiveness, he says, when I kept silent, my bones wasted away. So healing is needed so that we can be, quote, righteous in our relationship with God in one another. And yes, as Christians, we are positionally righteous. We are justified before God. That is, that is set. And James is talking about now we need to be in right relationship with God. We need to be in right relationship with one another. As James says in the rest of verse 16, it is the prayer of a righteous person. Who is a righteous person? It is a believer who is in a right relationship with God. It's one who's in a right relationship with other believers. And James says, that person has great power at its working. And so we cannot expect God to honor our prayers when we are not walking in a right relationship with God and others. Sin hinders the power of prayer. But get this, confession clears away the obstacles for God's power to work. It's awesome. It is a stunning invitation we have here. Is anyone suffering out there? Is anyone cheerful here today? Is anyone sick? James says, pray. Why? Because prayer makes a difference. Listen, listen, notice this. God works his extraordinary power through the prayers of 
ordinary people like Elijah and us. And so now we see this example of this praying prophet that James uses to illustrate the power of prayer of ordinary people like us. And you might immediately think, Elijah is not a very helpful example because what I know about Elijah, he is anything but ordinary as a prophet of God. After all, he performed these great miracles. The dude didn't even die. He was taken up to heaven in chariots of fire. And then he reappears on the Mount of Transfiguration with Moses and Jesus. And you're going to hold up Elijah as some ordinary person? Time out. Hold on. James knows what he's doing here. Notice what he says in verse 17. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours. So you know what James is doing here? He's actually lifting up. He is highlighting the humanity of Elijah. And in that sense, he's just another human being like us with a nature like ours. This means that Elijah experienced the same temptations that we do. He experienced and he battled the same weaknesses that they do. Do you realize this guy, this prophet of God, he struggled immensely with despair and depression as a prophet of God to the point he wanted to die. So please do not think that you have to be some super saint to pray effectively and powerfully like Elijah did. The good news is this. Elijah is just like us. Listen, he was righteous by grace through faith and like us. He was also familiar with despair and fear and weakness like each of us. If I can quote Alec Motier, he writes this. Speaking of Elijah, he could rise to the heights of faith and commitment, and he could fall into the depths of despair and depression. Elijah could be brave and resolute sometimes and then flee for his life at a whiff of danger. He could be selfless in his concerns for others and then filled with self-pity. In other words, he was an ordinary person, but he was right with God. That's Elijah, and that can be us. And so James highlights the humanity of Elijah to motivate us here today to pray. But Elijah is also an example of the power of prayer when we pray. Notice the example James gives in 17 and 18. He says, he, he prayed fervently that it might not rain, and for three years and six months it did not rain on the earth. And then he prayed again. And heaven gave rain, and the earth bore its fruit. Now, if you want to read about this whole story of how it encountered, it's actually very fascinating. I encourage you to do it. You can read it in 1 Kings chapter 17 and 18. Here's the synopsis, cliff note versions. A drought came, and the rain came, all because Elijah prayed and God worked. To withhold rain and to bring rain is something only God can do, but God did it in response to Elijah's prayer. And then James sums it all up by saying that Elijah prayed fervently. But that gives the impression that Elijah, somehow he prayed passionately, that he prayed endlessly, when it literally means, that phrase, prayed fervently, it literally means with prayer he prayed. So the meaning here is not on the fervency or the frequency or even the fluency of Elijah's prayers, but rather that he just prayed. That and nothing more. Do you realize Elijah's prayers were, they were not eloquent. So it's not like you have to use the right words, say the right thing. It's not like you have to be, have this prayer fluency and language and blah, 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 blah. No. His prayers, they were simple, they were brief and to the point, and here's the point. God works his extraordinary power through ordinary people who just what? Who just pray. And yes, we pray expectantly, and then we wait patiently for God to work. Why? Because, let's be honest here, most of our prayers and even the answers to our prayers involve a whole lot of patience. 
Rarely does God answer our prayers immediately. And so we pray expectantly, and God works powerfully, but we must pray, get this, without demands on God or deadlines on God. James' point is simple. Prayer is powerful, not because Elijah is some mighty prophet, but because our God is a mighty God who is sovereign. Get this over all creation. He can heal the sick. He can restore the sinful and he can alter the reins. So pray to this mighty God in every situation of your life till Jesus comes. Listen, our God is gracious. Our God is generous. And he invites us here to come to him in prayer. Why? Because Prayer makes a difference for our good and ultimately for his glory. So let us draw near to God in prayer. And he will draw near to us with, get this, everything we need to remain steadfast till Jesus comes. So let's pray. Let's pray. Will you bow your heads? Will you take 15, 30 seconds here? And whether you are suffering, sick, or cheerful, or somewhere in between, will you bring it to God in prayer? Right now, as a corporate body, pray. Lift up your heart to God in prayer. And then we will lift up our hearts in praise before we go. Oh, Heavenly Father, it is so amazing to think that you invite us to come to you in prayer and that you hear our prayers and you answer our prayers according to your good and perfect will. So, Father, help us all to leave here motivated to handle everything in our lives with prayer till Jesus comes. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So let us stand, let us praise God now from our hearts.